We are in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, and in recent weeks we've seen that Jesus Christ became a man, another, uh, that he would have solidarity with the human race. And specifically, Jesus Christ's virgin birth gave him a body within which he could die on the cross for you and me. And after death, Jesus Christ could and did rise bodily from the grave to show us that we will too someday. He's the first fruits, the prototype of all who die in faith. Having Christ and having solidarity with Christ as believers means, according to Hebrews 2, verses 11 to 16, the following, we are his children. He tells us about God the Father. He leads us in singing to God the Father when we assemble and we don't fear death. These are all tremendous great blessings of being a child of God who is heaven-bound with a no-so faith based on Scripture and not a hope-so faith based on feelings. And so today's verse, single verse, for a consideration together is verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 2. Now I invite you to turn in your Bibles on your electronic devices or watch the screen and I'm going to read Hebrews 2.17, God's word. Therefore, he, Christ, had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Our Roman Catholic friends have a very uh, clearly defined understanding of what their priests do. The Church of Rome has made it very clear to the Roman Catholic adherent what they can expect from their priest, namely that he would administrate the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, that he would be involved in praying, they believe, the bread of the Eucharist into the actual body of Christ. They understand from their church dogma that the priest would pray the communion wine into the actual uh, blood of Christ. They understand that their priest would be the one to hear their confessions of sin. And the Roman Catholic, with this well-defined view of their priest, would understand in their uh, context that it's proper to call their priest father. And so the Roman Catholics that we know and are our friends, they have these understandings of their priest. In a sense, we see the same uh, certainty, clarity in the first readers of the book of Hebrews, how they saw the high priest to Israel. There was not any fuzziness or ambiguity. The average Jew at the time of the Old Testament knew exactly things about the high priest of Israel, just like Roman Catholics know certain things about their priests. What did the first readers of the book of Hebrews, Jews by birth, and then those who had turned to Yeshua, Messiah, Jesus, to be their Savior, those who were saved the same way that we are, by God's grace and because of faith in the finished work of Christ, those first readers, what did they understand when they read at verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become merciful and faithful high priest, bing, high priest. Thoughts flooded their Jewish minds, clear thoughts. They knew that a high priest had to be of the line of Aaron. They knew that the Jewish high priest was the only one allowed inside the temple's holy of holies, and at that once a year. They knew that the high priest for the Jews was the only mediator between Israel and God. They understood that he officiated the ceremony of the scapegoat and the sacrifice goat, where once a year two goats were brought before the assembly of the nation, and as the lots fell on the 
two goats, the lot that fell on the one goat to be sacrificed, that goat was killed and its blood was shed. That meant the lot fell on the other scapegoat to figuratively, to pictorially, to visibly put the sins of the nation of Israel, all of them, on the scapegoat and let the scapegoat wander away from the Israelite camp into the wilderness as a picture of God forgiving national sin and removing national sin from the camp of Israel. They understood all that. And when they first read verse 17, these thoughts flooded their Hebrew minds. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So they understood the Lord Jesus had a pedigree, had exclusive ministry, a unique mediation. He was the efficient of the ceremony, which pictured the imputation of national sin and the atoning for national sin. They understood that he had pure, legal, religious cleanliness, and they understood that Christ applied his own blood, as it were, the blood of his sacrifice to their sin accounts. <laughs> so... That's what the average first reader of the book of Hebrews understood. And when the term high priest came up, bing, they had these ideas and backgrounds in mind. But if you go with me, please, let your eye go back one verse from 17 to verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Will you please notice that back then and still today, Christ doesn't help any angels. He didn't die to redeem any angels. He doesn't pay for any angels' sins. Jesus Christ is not in any way, shape, or form the high priest of angels. They're on their own. Their destinies were cast when they either sided with God in Satan's rebellion, Lucifer's rebellion, or they didn't side with God and became demons. They're on their own. But not so with us believers. The Lord Jesus Christ certainly does help us. Praise his name. He is our high priest. Whether we are believing Jews or whether we are believing Gentiles, and both believing Jews and believing Gentiles comprise the true church of God. Don't ever get over that. Please, verse 17 again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This verse is saying that Jesus Christ as our high priest is two things at the same time, merciful and faithful. We have a merciful and a faithful high priest in Christ. And it ought to be so reassuring that our high priest is both merciful and faithful. It ought to be so reassuring to you as a believer. The blessing of our high priest, Jesus, being merciful is that he is kind and forgiving. We have a kind and a forgiving Savior. We have a kind and a forgiving high priest. But that's half the story. The other blessing about our high priest, Jesus, is that he is faithful. Not only merciful, but he is faithful. That is, he is dependable. That is, he is consistent. And when you've got both merciful and faithful together in one high priest Savior, then we have an effective high priest. Jesus Christ's high priestly ministry for you, if you know Christ as your Savior, never falls short, never fails to be personal, 
never goes on vacation, never amounts to spiritual malpractice, never stops. And such a ministry is a ministry of a merciful and a faithful high priest. Think about this with me. Because uh, if he was only merciful and not faithful, you know what we would be left with? A fickle high priest, an undependable high priest, a priest who is one way one day and a completely different way another day. We don't have that, thank God. On the other side of the ledger, if he was faithful but not merciful, then we would have a judgmental high priest, an unforgiving high priest, a high priest that did not have understanding about us. But praise God, that is not our high priest. Thankfully, our high priest, the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ, is not any of these two halves of error. Let me ask you, if I opened the microphone on the floor right now and I said, anybody at all that would like to speak to how Jesus has proven himself to be perfectly dependable, consistent, merciful, kind, and forgiving, would you stand to your feet and give us an example? After the initial awkwardness and shyness, people would be popping up in this sanctuary like popcorn and we would be here for a long time. We have a perfectly dependable, consistent, merciful, kind, and forgiving high priest savior. Never get over it. But there's more in verse 17. Verse 17 not only points out that our high priest Jesus is merciful and faithful, it also points out the areas in which he is merciful and faithful. See again verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Watch it. In things pertaining to God. Jesus Christ as your high priest and savior is Merciful and faithful in things pertaining to God. Does the verse get any more specific about which things or which thing is Jesus Christ as high priest merciful and faithful in? Yes, it does get specific. And verse 17 tells us that the particular matter in which our high priest Jesus Christ is merciful and faithful is something called propitiation. Now, we don't use propitiation in our emails or our conversations at the water cooler where we work. It's a Bible word. It's a theological word. It's an important word that we ought not to be shy about and think that we somehow can't understand. Propitiation means simply an adequate payment. In this context, propitiation is an adequate payment for our sins. Adequate payment. You know that sin does demand a payment. God can't grade on the curve. God can't wink his eye and say, well, I'm not going to look at that sin because, you know, compared, John's compared to Sally's, John's is minor. I'll overlook John's. No. God is pure, holy, undefiled, a consuming fire. And so all of our sins, every single one of our sins, creates a sin debt that we owe to God. We need propitiation. We need an adequate payment for all of our sins. And that adequate payment is a payment that is enough by God's estimation. Enough is 100% of the debt. Enough is nothing more is due. Enough is no more payments before are scheduled or necessary. Enough is a, meets the before death 
deadline. You do know there's no second chance after we die. Either we're in Christ by faith when we die or we're outside of Christ when we die, outside of his being, putting our faith in him. And so these uh, propitiation ideas that Christ paid adequate payment for our sins, all of them, means 100% they're paid for. Nothing more needs to be added by us to pay for them. No more payments need to be scheduled. And these payments, propitiations for our sins, have been affected in heaven's ledger book before we die. Now, for your sins and my sins... The required payment, God tells us in his word, is nothing less than and nothing other than the perfect, sinless blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world by his blood, Jesus Christ. Here are some verses that you may want to um, uh, consider as you're thinking of this concept of propitiation. I'll read some of them. Uh, 1 John 2, 2, and he himself... Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Or 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ's unique Powerful, precious blood is the 100% required payment for all of your sins past, all of your sins present, and all of your sins future. Christ's blood is the only needed and provided propitiation for your sins. Hebrews 9.22, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The life is in the blood, it says in the Old Testament. And so that all being noted, listen to how kind and benevolent and understanding and gracious and accommodating and loving God was in his law to the nation of Israel. Typically, God required the blood of a sacrifice to atone for, to make a propitiation for the sins of the Jews, but he made an exception. According to Leviticus 5, verse 11, in the Old Testament law, those Jews who were too, or too poor to have even one small animal to sacrifice for their sins were allowed to bring a sin offering of flour like you bake with. Leviticus 5.11. Do you see it that even in the Old Testament Levitical Mosaic law that God was merciful and faithful? For he made the exception, as he's allowed to do, of course, and he accepted what the impoverished but repentant Jew could afford to offer him for sins. Amazing. A loving high priest was in the Old Testament is in the New Testament, is now. A loving, faithful, accommodating, merciful, stooping to the sinner, Savior, and high priest. And that's your God. That's my God. He's merciful and he's faithful. And in the Old Testament he was, and in the New Testament he was, and now he is, and forevermore he will be merciful, 
Now, again, if we open this up to a homework exercise, if I was to say to you, think for a moment, how has Jesus Christ, your Savior and High Priest, been merciful to you? And I gave you a few minutes to think. Ideas would come into your mind of your life's history all over the place. And then if I said to you, how has Christ been faithful to you? Think about it. You gave yourself some uncluttered thought. You would see so many ways and instances and examples that Jesus Christ has been faithful to you. Then I would move from the mental exercise for something you could do after you leave uh, today and the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl. You could do this after the Super Bowl, and um, you could uh, tell someone, amen over here, you could tell someone that I have written down some examples of how Jesus Christ has been merciful and faithful to me. Could I have lunch with you? tell you. Pastor Elliot challenged me to write them down and then to have a chance to tell someone else who loves Jesus Christ. Could I meet you at Starbucks or the Acropolis or wherever you might like to meet and have lunch on Wednesday so I could tell you what came to my mind and heart when I was challenged to think about how is my high priest, Savior, Jesus Christ, merciful and faithful? Could I do that? I'll tell you something. That kind of a lunch... (laughs) would be more profitable than even the biggest business deal lunch you could think of. Or you could make a phone call after you've written these things down, and you could say, hey, it's Pastor Rob. Do you have five minutes to talk on the phone with me? Okay, good, thanks. I want to tell you some of the ways that God has been merciful and faithful to me in Christ. And talk. Be vocal. (laughs) Be vocal. Now, Propitiation is a satisfactory payment for sin. I want to say a little bit more about propitiation with you now. I want to explain two twin concepts, Siamese twin theological truths that are uh, to do with propitiation, that satisfactory payment for sin. On the one hand, I want to talk to you about propitiation, which I already have, but I want to add a second concept, expiation. Expiation. These two things are different but equally precious, and they both are game-changing works of God, propitiation and expiation. Propitiation and expiation together tell the whole wonderful work of God when he forgives us. To have one without the other would be half of the story. But these two theological concepts and works of God travel together. They are integrated together. They are one Work that has two phases, a propitiation phase and an expiation phase. Let me explain it. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ with his blood on the cross that this table remembers in a few minutes has 100% accomplished both propitiation and expiation. So let's go down a quick list that's on your bulletin. Propitiation pays for sins. Expiation covers over sins. Propitiation removes God's wrath. Expiation releases God's love. Propitiation is for God. Expiation is for the believer. Propitiation is a work that only God can do, but guess what? So is expiation. Expiation is also a work that only God can do. Propitiation satisfies. Expiation pours out. Propitiation is the Old Testament slain goat. Expiation is the Old Testament released scapegoat. 
Propitiation is Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Expiation is Psalm 51, verse 7. Purify me, David wrote. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Expiation is also Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Propitiation and expiation. They're bedfellows. They're Siamese twins. They're conjoined Siamese twins. They are together always in the mind of heaven, and they must be together in the mind of the believer. To go on further, propitiation is the sin debt retired. Expiation is the sin debt erased. Propitiation checks off as being paid, and expiation erases off the record. May we see our little video, please? I'm not going to say anything in the recorded video, but you see that whiteboard has some sins listed, and I'm checking them off. Lies, gossip, selfishness, pride. This is the work of propitiation. All of your sins have been checked off by God as being paid in full by Jesus Christ. But that's half the story. That's propitiation, and that's precious, but there's expiation. God in Christ races from your record the sins that you have confessed, and God is forgiven through the blood of Christ. The board is clean because of the God's work of grace and expiation. Gone. Gone. Propitiation and expiation. Propitiation minuses God's wrath, and expiation adds a fresh start and a clean slate. Saying it another way, propitiation is how God got free to erase your sins. And expiation is the fact that God has, in fact, erased your sins. (laughs) That's so funny to me. (laughs) It's so ironic that the one being in the entire created universe that can remember everything chooses to forget, confess sin. And I can't remember where I left my car keys. But I choose to remember sins that Christ has forgiven as I've confessed them as if they weren't confessed and forgiven. (laughs) Man, oh yes. And so Jeremiah the prophet wrote in 31, verse 34, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each uh, man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, watch, and their sin I will remember no more. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, God says, and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews 10, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Propitiation and expiation. Praise the Lord is right. We all love and have claimed 1 John 1, 9 many times, I imagine, in our Christian lives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's unpack that verse in the Greek 
Um, if we confess homo legeo, legeo to say homo the same, to say the same things about our specific sins, that is confession. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful, not fickle, and just. He has judicial basis upon which he can forgive our sins. Christ paid for them. Christ died in our places. Propitiation has been made by his blood. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, propitiation, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's expiation. Hmm. By the way, if we confess our sins, that ought not to be a shotgun blast. You ought not to pray, if I've committed any sins, Lord, please forgive me. That's a shotgun blast. You have a rightful confession. When I beeped at the guy ahead of me at Shirley and Mackey with anger in my heart, Lord, that was sin. Shotgun blast, no. Rifle. Agree with God over specifics and call it what God calls it. If we confess our sin, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, propitiation, and expiation. But let's be real. You might, this little testimony I will give, you might relate to, maybe. I'm in the model bakery on my lunch break, and I want to get some sugared twists. And there is a woman ahead of me who simply cannot make a decision about what she wants to buy. And I wait, and I hope, and I think, and I look at my watch, I go, in my heart, I go, lady, there are not a lot of options here. Just pick something. Of course, I don't say it. I just think it in my heart, but it's sin. So as the Lord starts to work in my heart about my attitude toward the lady ahead of me who is slow to make decisions, the Spirit of God points to my heart and says, that pride, that selfishness, that being in a hurry and patience was all sin. So then I have a, ch- a decision to make. And I say to God, you know, when I was in the model breakery on Tuesday... And I was selfish and in a hurry and had a critical spirit and I had no patience. That was all sin, Lord. I call it sin. It's all sin like you call it. And then he's faithful and just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But guess this is how it works, at least in my experience. On Thursday, after the Tuesday incident, I get this impression on my heart. You know, how could a pastor have those bad attitudes like you had at the model bakery? Are you really a Christian? You're a hypocrite. Could God really forgive that? And and the impression is not from the Holy Spirit. It is from the adversary, the enemy of our soul, Satan. And he's accusing me of sin I have confessed and sin that has been paid for and sin that has been expiated, and it's off my record. But you know what? If I don't take Scripture at face value, if I don't live theologically based on what the Bible says, then I'll be carrying around this false guilt about something that happened at the model breakery on Tuesday. But you know what? <laughs> if on Friday I confess the sin at the model bakery that God forgave me on Tuesday, you know what I think happens in heaven? When God hears my prayer of confession over a, a second time after he's forgiven me, I think God's going to say, what bad attitude at the model bakery? I don't have a record of that. Except the forgiveness I gave you. You're forgiven. Don't be falsely guilty. (laughs) Several years ago, many years ago, an owner of a Rolls-Royce vehicle 
had uh, faulty brakes, and he took the Rolls-Royce vehicle to the headquarters in London, England to have the vehicle fixed, its brakes. And sometime after that, he had, for some reason, I'm not sure, he had to write to the headquarters of Rolls-Royce and ask them specifically, what date did you fix my faulty brakes, and what did you do exactly to fix my faulty brakes? Well, you know, he got a letter back from the Rolls-Royce headquarters, and you know what it said? Dear Mr. Smith Esquire, we have no record whatsoever of any Rolls-Royce anywhere ever having faulty brakes. Forgiven and forgotten. Expensed and erased. A sin debt retired and a sin record erased. Propitiation and expiation. Verse 17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As you come to the table, as I come to the table, if you are mindful of sins you know you have already confessed, then accept the forgiveness that is promised in the Scriptures. On the other hand, if you come to this table and there is known and unconfessed sin in your life, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you haven't come clean with God on this. You haven't called it for what it is. You haven't named names about that sin to God in confession. Then by all means, confess that sin privately, individually, silently before you take the bread and before you take the cup. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that we can partake of these elements in an unworthy manner. Do you know what it is to, to take these elements in an unworthy manner? The text, the context of 1 Corinthians 11 tells us it's to do so with known, unconfessed sin in their lives, your lives. The man in Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmother. The believers who were taking litigation to pagan courts to take each other to law, to suits. If you have confessed a sin, know it's forgiven in Christ. If you have not yet confessed a sin, confess it and be forgiven and take the elements. Now, some of our, all of our sin is against God, of course, but some of our sin is also against a human being. And if we have committed sin that the Holy Spirit convicts us of that we have not confessed yet, we need to go to that person after the service lets out. Maybe they're here in the congregation or maybe they're not. But before bedtime tonight, you need to go to that person and say, I came under conviction at the Lord's Supper that I did such and such to you or whatever it might be and say, will you please forgive me? And then you have done your part if possible, it says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. It's not always possible to live at peace with all men because you can only keep your side of the yard tidy. I am responsible to keep my side of the yard tidy, to be quick to forgive others and to be quick to ask for forgiveness. I can't keep anybody else's yard tidy. That's between them and God. But when you ask someone to forgive you sincerely, I believe because of Jesus Christ, they will forgive you. Because it's the DNA of a born-again Christian to resemble God. And God is a forgiving, merciful, and faithful God. We pray together. Merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus, thank you for the work of 
propitiation and expiation. Thank you that our sins are paid for and erased. Thank you that they are forgotten in, in the mind of heaven. Help us to forgive and to forget and not to carry and lug around false guilt. Lord, help us to forget the sins you've forgiven. Maybe there's persons standing right now who do not yet know Christ as Savior. You've come in and we're so glad you're here, but you're not yet a Christian. I just wonder if this message on propitiation and expiation has been convicting you of your need for Christ. You came in without a high priest. You don't have to leave without one. You came in without a Savior, but you don't have to leave without one. You can transfer your trust completely to Christ, who he is and what he's done for you on the cross, and be forgiven. His blood was shed to pay for those sins. Coming back, Lord, to those of us who know Christ as Savior, give us grace and determination to count our blessings in you to name them one by one, and certainly at the head of the list for most of our blessings has to be (laughs) sins forgiven and forgotten. Lord, help us to surface examples of your mercy to us that we could share them with others, examples of your faithfulness to us that we could share them with others. God, forgive us when we've been silent about how you've forgiven us. Maybe be vocal And may your name be praised. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.